Welcome back to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. This is that pod where every single episode we do something trippy, something meditative, something movie, something, something to (laughs) explore consciousness. So, and today you will not be disappointed. We're doing something with consciousness. I am Tasha Schumann. This is my co-host, Jeff Warren. I am Tasha Schumann's co-host, Jeff Warren. He's waving at you. So, uh, Jeff, tell them what we got on deck today. We have a good friend of Tasha and mine on. Her name is Rima Deeb. She is a expert in unconscious bias. She does anti-bias trainings, and she's been doing this for many, many years. She's a very funny human being. She makes talking about and exploring this difficult subject somehow fun. I, I love this episode. I admit I found it challenging, especially at the beginning. It's weird to see these knee-jerk bias-type responses in yourself. Rima encourages you to recognize that everyone has these. So part of this is about seeing just that these are part of your hardwiring, and if we can bring more awareness to it, we can then begin to act in more skillful ways. So she does that with a bunch of really imaginative setups, and I thought this was good medicine. How about you? Yeah, I really loved the conversation in this one. We kind of went in every corner of bias. You know, we talked about our own personal bias. We also talked about how can we raise children to be less biased or to not even to be less biased because everyone's biased, but to recognize their bias and really just had a playful time with this, you know, kind of breaking down that the barriers. I think sometimes some of us are afraid to look at our biases because we think it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to mean that we're bad people, that we have biases. So just taking the steam out of that and playing around, that was really special. Yeah, that was brilliant. So without further ado, Hit it. Rima Deeb, welcome to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. Hello. It's an honor to be here. So we are curious about these practices that you're going to guide us in. And maybe by way of setup, can you tell us a little bit about you know who you are, how you got into this subject, and then what we need to know about these practices? Alrighty. So who I am, I am an anti-bias, unconscious bias, anti-oppression, DEI, lots of hot <laughs> terms in there, uh, a facilitator, you know, trainer, um, and, and curriculum writer. And um, I work directly with people, tens of thousands of people so far from across Canada, the States, as far as Japan, Jamaica, uh, bringing some sort of consciousness around bias, the nature of bias, how it works. But most importantly, kind of the point of all that is like, what can we do about it? You know, how can we intercept and really uh, sort of mitigate the harm that is caused by our biases, among other kind of topics. But that's sort of the the first most foundational kind of step towards taking an active role in anti-oppression, in anti-bias, in equity and inclusion. Uh, So yes, that's what I do in a bit of a nutshell. And what I have today is not so much a a very traditional practice, perhaps, in the way that your listeners might be used to. But these are practices that we actually use in in the workshop, in the training, to just allow us to tap into the kind of unconscious part of our brain where bias lives. But this is meant to be the kind of practice that we kind of tap into anytime when we're in the moment, especially, right? That's really what it's focused on. Um, but here we're going to kind of slow it down and create a bit more of a, of a controlled setting for us to, to reflect. So I'm curious, just, you know, I think we all have an implicit understanding of what bias means, but what kinds of things are we talking about when we're talking about unconscious bias? Like other than just the stereotypes that I hold, how deep does that go? 
Yeah. So it's it's really basically we boil it down to an idea. A stereotype is an idea. And it's the ideas that we hold. And we we build those from lots of different places. I mean, one of the, the big and easy ones, of course, is, you know, from the media that we consume. If we think about your mind is like a garden and you plant seeds and what you water, it affects what grows. Well, we're watering our brain with ideas all the time, experiences and ideas. And those experiences and ideas form our beliefs about the world and our values. And those things inform our attitudes. And that informs, you know, how we act and behave. But if we go back to, you know, what are we putting into it? What are we watering it with? Uh, those are the ideas that that we kind of form our ourselves and our communities and the way that we behave around. Um, and what's what's going in there? And so the media is one of them. And the media is not like a watering can watering our minds. It's like a power <laughs> hose. It's like it is it is is so intense and so strong, but it's also like everywhere. There's really no more escape. If you live like a conventional life, especially now in COVID, right? Like we exist just in virtual spaces. So that's like that's definitely a big one, but also things like obviously our upbringing, you know, and our, our culture and our, and our faith beliefs and our experiences. And, you know, all of these things are going to shape and impact some of those ideas. But in general, um, because they're unconscious, we, we haven't taken much of an inventory a lot of the time of what's in there. What am I carrying around? Like, do I need this? And is this benefiting me? And have I thought about why, I, you know, these ideas are here and where they come from? And more importantly, how are they impacting actually, you know, my treatment of people? And they do right? The thing is that there's degrees of harm. Um, so I'm going to give, you know, kind of two examples on different different ends of the harm spectrum, right? So uh, when I was a, a faculty teaching at the college, and I was probably in my late 20s, but maybe I looked a bit younger than that. I don't know. But I had more than more than once uh, on a sort of a semi-regular basis, I'd be parking in the faculty lot and some angry faculty would yell across the lot like, this is a student lot, you know? And there's just the, in the moment they just had an idea of what a student looked like versus what a faculty looked like and they're just you know on their way to work and maybe they're having a bad day and there's a lot of traffic and they just like shout a thing based on an idea that they have it's not a rational thought and i think consciously if you had questioned those individuals they they would have said that they would have been like oh yeah well you know some students are older than me and some faculty are really young all that they can hold space for that conscious knowledge but unconsciously without really thinking about it and a word comes out of their mouth and you know they're in a bad mood so that's like a minor annoyance to me, right? Not that big of a deal. On the spectrum of ways that bias creates harm, you know, me being minorly annoyed at some other faculty, meh, right? But 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 let's go to the to the other side of this where these types of things end up having massive harm. So it becomes in that particular example, whether or not you think somebody is responsible enough to hire or experienced enough to hire for a job, you know, based on an, an assumption like that. Um, but I'm going to switch gears into a completely different realm. There's a story of a man named Brian Sinclair, who is an indigenous man who came into a Winnipeg hospital. Uh, this was probably over 10 years ago. And uh, Brian Sinclair had some complications from a, a bladder infection. And he, he went in to seek medical treatment, but he also had a disability that caused slurred speech. And Brian Sinclair is an indigenous man. And when he came in for treatment, the nurse or whoever the people were who assessed him what they saw instead of the reality of who was in front of them was the stereotype of a drunk indigenous person. And so instead of provide him with the medical treatment that, you know, he needed and was entitled to and was actually extremely treatable, they left him in the waiting room to sort of sober up. And tragically, he died 
of his very treatable condition. And so there's, those are two ends of the extreme, but neither of those are actually that uncommon on, on both ends. And then everything in between, right? Who gets housing, who gets the job, who we find suspicious and call the police on without having any, any real grounds. Um, recently, there's an, an incident where police were called on a four-year-old black child at a school Same. in Waterloo who was having a tantrum. Four years old, four-year-old black child, and the 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 deeply rooted anti-black ideas and biases that exist in society that connect blackness with violence. I mean, those are so deeply rooted in our society. These highly white supremacist ideas that they are feeding into, you know, even in in a moment with a child, that idea that that the, somehow this black body is dangerous and you need police intervention. There is massive harm in the spaces there. Yeah. And it's sad, but it, then it puts some onus on ourselves to like try and protect or like, you know, we go out of our way to try and protect ourselves from these stereotypes. I just saw came through my Instagram the other day, um, you know, another black woman, she was saying she wrote what she says when she goes to the hospital for an emergency, kind of like what you were saying, because, you know, black women so often are failed by, by the medical system because they're considered hysterical, they're drug seeking behavior, all sorts of things. So she goes in and she's, I don't know, a little bit older than I am. So maybe she's like I don't know, 40 or 50. And she's, she goes in. The first thing that she says is, I am a former athlete. I have a high pain tolerance and I very rarely go to the doctor. So the fact that I'm here, you should take this seriously. That's the first thing out of her mouth because she's like, mm -hmm. you don't know anything about me. You think you know something about me. Let me set you straight. I'm here for a real emergency. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think it, it's sad that we have to kind of have our own backs like that. But that's part of this process of like helping people get over biases, all of us that we all hold. Yeah. And that's why step one is what are you going to do about it individually? So on that note, should we just, maybe we're just going to, we're going to jump into the first practice Ooh, before we let's get before we get too up <laughs> in our heads. Um, so this practice is a little bit different. It's generally uh, best if you're standing, but seated is also fine. But you want to be able to sort of move your arms. You don't want to be like in like a really snug armchair or something. You got to have a bit of mobility. And so if you are standing or seated, we're going to take a couple of breaths to just sort of feel where our body makes contact with the floor to really ground ourselves and so we're going to just start with one breath and then we'll we'll hear our our bell our chime bong <laughs> thank you okay so what's going to happen in a moment is i'm going to say a word and what I want you to do is just move your body. This is going to be an embodied practice where you're basically, you're going to let your body do the thinking for you. So in a moment, when I say a word, you're just going to move your body to wherever your body wants to go in response to that word, to embody whatever it is that I'm saying. Usually what happens is I'm going to say that word, you're going to get an image and you're just going to let your body express that image. Now you can do this with your eyes closed. You don't have to, you can soften your gaze and, and look at something else in the room. And there's going to be a couple of them. We'll take a moment between each just to assess what we've done. We'll reset and then we'll go again. So here we go with the first word. Bicycle. Bicycle. All right. Let's have a look. And we see. Yep. This is, I'm riding a bike. I got the handlebars. Same as Jeff. I think we're riding a tandem bike. Yep. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yes, it seems That's more like of a that. Neighborhood cruiser style. 
Really? Banana seat. Jeff looks like he's riding a horse, let's be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jeff I'm does trying to get you to see like my hands. Riding a horse. <laughs> riding a horse. I'm, I, went 19th, I went 18th century. There's <laughs> old bias. Yeah. Really old bias. <laughs> All right. So that was just a practice round. We start, start easy just to get our bodies warmed up and into it, right? And get a bit harder now. All right. Here we go. Eyes closed. One deep breath in. Teacher. Teacher. I see we've got the teacher finger. And and probably I imagine there's many, many viewers. I've also got a hand on my on my waist. A the little one hand on hip and index finger. Yes. In okay, so the chastising. So I noticed that the, the teacher finger, which by the way, so I've done this activity with tens of thousands of people around the world. There is some near universality with a lot of this. So the teacher finger is one of them. So Tasha, you have the teacher yes, finger it's of blame. A finger pointing I'm giving detention right now. This is this is a yes, teacher stance it. that I encountered more than once. <laughs> yeah, you miss it, met a lot. Yeah. So that's the teacher finger form number one. Teacher finger form number two is the teacher finger of knowledge. The aha pointing to, and that's what you got going on there, Jeff. Pointing to the blackboard to the uh, calculus formula. Take this in, boys and girls. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Oh, I just revealed a gender bias. Isn't that of some sort of interesting, fascinating? Everybody around the world, that's the universal <laughs> symbol of teacher. Index finger pointed, either out or up. Wonderful. All right, let's go again. Eyes closed, reset, feel your feet or whatever part of your body is touching the ground. Deep breath in. And woman. Woman. All right, let's see. What do we got? What do we got here? Jeff? I think I feel more like a goldfish. Jeff looks like he's waiting for a kiss. So I'm, uh, I'm squeezing my lips out and I'm doing this weird contortion with my body. I think I'm trying to make my body look hourglass Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Maybe squeezing, trying to get some oh, cleavage. Oh, he's definitely squeezing some cleavage there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, so this is rather humiliating, actually, to recognize that the first thing I go to is some sort of Jessica Rabbit thing, maybe from my <laughs> 80s media viewing, or or maybe more like Marvel Comics, like Marvel Comics superhero ladies, which I read many, many, many Marvel Comics in the late 70s and 80s. So strange that you would have that image. <laughs> Oh, we were never portrayed that way in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> you made that up entirely on your own, Jeff. That has never happened, never once. It is shocking how just embarrassing that is. You know, it's not we're gonna, yeah, we, let, let's let's toss that word out. Sexy ladies are ladies too. I'll, I'll, I'll just pause my, hold my shame there <laughs> yes. for a moment. Tasha, what, what was happening there? I got the Wonder Woman stance on. I got my hands on my hips and the shoulders back. Ah. I'm like, bring it on, world. Here we go. In all my ladies, independent. <laughs> it's a Beyonce right here. That's what I got. <laughs> okay, it's Beyonce Wonder yes. Woman. Yeah. And look at that. It's the, it's the two sides of the lady coin. It's Wonder Woman on the one side and Jessica Rabbit on the other. I think that usually that sums, mm -hmm. sums it up. Right? <laughs> no other variation. This is us. <laughs> <laughs> nothing nothing at all that's it got it awesome okay let's keep rolling let's take another deep breath man man only to be fair all right we got we got muscles happening over here with uh <laughs> I'm just, I'm giggling. Just giggling. I'm just, my first impulse is just <laughs> 
I'm I'm you can't see my hands, but I'm urinating. I'm like holding, I'm holding, <laughs> I'm holding my, my imaginary penis and I'm I'm standing and peeing. Okay, I, I don't feel so bad about my stereotype now that I'm <laughs> the yeah. very first thing that came to my mind was like things a guy can do that I don't do. Yeah. That I truly envy <laughs> a lot. Not gonna lie, it's probably like the one reason. I'm like, I would oh, never want to do that. Mm, except for that, maybe the convenience, maybe. the sheer convenience. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then you got we got the muscles over yeah, here, kind of Charles Atlas style, like you see in the back of the dime book comic books. You know, you too can look like this. Yes, everybody can. Indeed, <laughs> should, obviously, that's the message, of course. Yes. Uh, all right, we're gonna do one last one, and then we'll, we'll unpack these a little bit. So again, just take a moment to reset, loosen your body, find your footing or your comfortable seating again. And we'll take one breath. Senior citizen. <laughs> this happened in total <laughs> tandem. Oh, exactly. You both assumed this same sort of uh, hunched over grasping mm -hmm. cane position. Yeah. That's what we're seeing. And for me, it was bad vision because I'm squinting. <laughs> for Jeff, it's toothlessness. Dentures. Dentures. Yes. Yes, that's what it looks like is going on. Right. Senior citizen. So just a quick refresh here. How old is a senior citizen? 90. <laughs> On the lower end, I think the like technical threshold is like sixty five. It is, yes. But indeed. I was up in the like hundred, you know, the centennial. Yeah. So your mind, your mind went up there to the to the yes. to the end yeah. of that journey, not the beginning. Yeah. Yours too, Jeff. It appears. Yeah, I was trying to channel the uh, hundred and twenty year old French lady smoking oh, her yeah. galois. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that is that tends to be where the mind goes. You are not alone in this, the two of you. So of course, like I said, we've done, I've done this activity hundreds of times now. Typically, it's a great activity to do when I have like a large, sometimes an auditorium full of people, and everybody stands up and closes their eyes. And I've done it with about maybe up to about a thousand people in one room. And what's really quite remarkable is, regardless of who these people are or where I am, there is this almost universality in that that first thing that comes to people's minds tends to be for the majority of people. So it's not 100% of people that are going to do the same thing, but variations of about the same thing. So when I say woman, it doesn't matter what crowd I'm in or where we are, we get something along the lines of what you did there, Jeff, which was like, you know, something sexy, something channeling or, or representing female sort of beauty and sexualization in some way, right? So it's that, you know, one hand over behind the head, one hand on the on the waist. And when I say man, there's, again, the almost universal sort of muscles. Men are really strong and kind of angry about it. Um, and then senior citizen in the same that, that same universal way our brain doesn't you know very few of us have the time actually in the activity and that's why it was designed that way to consider senior citizen what does it mean completely and what are all the different images what sort of comes to mind is whatever the easiest lowest hanging fruit is which tends to be the thing that we see the most how is that depicted right uh -huh. that's what's right at the surface it's interesting this exercise i have to admit it's uncomfortable. Like I, I'm <laughs> embarrassed. Like I, I don't know. It's sort of like standing naked or something in front of people. It's like you think that somehow it's revealing some true deep part of you, which I guess it is. And um, how do you work with people that that discomfort in people? I mean, it, it, I can see why people would not want to do this work. <laughs> Put it that way. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I think a we 
we prepare people for this. I mean, here we, we've kind of tossed you in, but you're also, the two of you have decided to do this in such a, a public <laughs> forum where you really are letting people into some really deeply intimate parts of your mind, but recognizing that that it's also a part that as as private as it feels, it's also like as public as can be. It's like it's the one of the most shared and common kind of things, you know, but it's really, it's, it's setting it up. I mean, we do set it up before people engage in the activity to normalize and, and understand and take away a lot of the judgment and the fear. We talk about the role of discomfort in learning that it's it's pretty essential to to any learning process is just kind of step outside of our comfort zone if only a little so if you're feeling a little uncomfortable right now you're doing it right but it feels like it's revealing something fundamental about who you are but you're kind of saying yeah this is here but this is not necessarily the same as your values like i consider myself a progressive human being i have my ideas around femininity and masculinity in terms of what i intellectually understand and how i engage with my peers and yet all of a sudden thrown into a situation i'm like acting like i'm eight or something so does that mean <laughs> that these are my true values or is there two different things here? Well, well, there are absolutely two different things here and that I'm going to speak to. But A, the activity is designed to make you do that, right? The reason why we ask you to react quickly is that what we're tapping into is the unconscious ideas that we're carrying around, which are a completely different thing than our conscious values. And why unconscious bias work is so important is that often if we're unaware of the unconscious ideas that we're carrying around, which are often not our own, which we didn't choose to take in, um, that we can end up behaving in a way that doesn't align with our conscious values. And in fact, that happens a lot, right? We say or do something that if we had had more time and more awareness and more consciousness with, we might have made a different choice, right? So your conscious values are in often in really deep contradiction to the biases that we carry. And so when we can tap in and identify them, now we can intercept them. We're more likely to intercept them in those moments when we are making a quick and snap decision under mm -hmm. duress, for example. And what you're talking about, too, really gets to the heart of what it means to be an ally, you know, for in, in any, any kind of situation. It's like being, you know, for me, for example, I'm a person of color. I have most of my friends and my person, my partner are white and you know, sometimes you get in these conversations about what does allyship mean? You know, I have all these unconscious biases or my family is, you know, racist or sexist or whatever. And to me, that's like the heart of allyship is just showing up and saying, I have these unconscious biases. I got them from being a person in the world. But the facing them, the knowing them and, and not being reactive to them is really what makes allyship work. Absolutely. That step one, you know, we talk about like in, in my work about allyship and there are these sort of principles of authentic allyship. And number one, always, and that's sort of like that's the red zone before we, we fancy ourselves an ally or doing any of that work is to actually start with the understanding of the self, right? What, How was I brought up? What ideas am I carrying? Even if I do not consciously believe them now, what impact have they had? And when might they come up? You know, under what situation might some of these ideas actually play a role? Um, and that commitment to allyship work is willing to get uncomfortable and acknowledge that I am part of the problem. We yeah. all are. We are all part of this large system that we've created and we all hold a piece of that puzzle. And so the very first step we can do is like, you know what, I'm going to look inward. I'm going to acknowledge that uh, though my conscious values and my intentions might be really good, I live in this world full of a lot of harmful ideas that I've been consuming basically since I was able to <laughs> consume ideas. Essentially, from the moment we're able to make some sort of contact with others, we start to, and actually even before that interesting piece of research that has a lot of people aren't aware of, we tend to think of basically 
babies is a bit of like a blank slate, right? Or they're born just like pure. And then they, we say things like, well, you know, prejudice isn't, it's learned, right? Children aren't born racist. Children aren't born discriminating. Well, actually, that's not true. <laughs> that our neurological hardwiring that allows us to make these, you know, large categories and generalizations and information that we store close to the surface, we have that from from birth. And babies as young as three months, when studied, were found to have what's called in-group bias, which is favoritism to those within their in-group. So we do have that that propensity. There is a function for it originally and biologically, but we now, like I said, we can update that software. And so as a parent, we have an extra obligation to recognize that. If we say nothing to our children, they're learning the wrong thing inherently. Uh, and so we have to take a super active role in, in undoing, A, what their natural inclination might be towards, and B, what society is going to reinforce in a really negative way. Oh, wow. So how do you, th what is that? I mean, as a parent, what is that active role? What does that look like? So it's, I mean, there's a, there's a whole kind of workshop around this, but I can kind of give you in, in, in a nutshell, a couple of these things is, is obviously we're modeling. We know that we're always modeling for our children, but tuning in a little bit more to understanding that our kids are always watching us and they're making meaning of things. And often if they come to the understanding and conclusion on their own, it can be wrong. So a small example is this is say, you've got, you know, you've got EO in, in the, in the backseat, you're driving and you're going to the supermarket and somebody like sort of rudely cuts you off and takes your parking spot. And it's just not your day. And you're like, not today. <laughs> and you get out of your car and you're like, you are extremely rude, sir. And then you get into an ultra, you know, you sort of yell at each other and you get back in the car and you're kind of in a huff and you know, your little one's watching. And it happens to be that the man who did this is a brown man wearing a turban but that has nothing to do with the whole incident that you just experienced but for your little child if that's the only person they've ever seen who looks like that they might write that down in a bit of a wrong way and so it's just coming back and being like whew, you know what just happened there daddy got a little upset about that i'm sure that is a very nice man and you know what even super nice people sometimes we just make a wrong decision and you know we, we disagreed about that parking spot, but that's it. You know, we clarify. We are careful the tone that we use. I mean, how do we speak to other people? How do we speak to diverse people that they have perhaps less contact with in their life? What types of, you know, images are they consuming? What kinds of stories? What kind of art? What kind of television? And then talking about it all, asking them. I mean, I sit down with my son and I straight up ask him directed questions like, what do your friends look like? What are their different skin colors? You know, what do you think about that? You know, we actually talk and he has all kinds of interesting questions and conclusions about race and we talk about them all. Um, and I think also just making no topic taboo. One of the biggest ones I'll say is that little ones love to do the thing where they ask the most embarrassing question in the world in the maximum earshot <laughs> of as many people. So, so again, you're out with your kid and they point to someone and they're like, oh, what's wrong with that? woman daddy why is her skin so dark or why doesn't she have an arm or whatever it is that they say loudly and our reaction as parents is often is to sort of like shush right we're embarrassed we're like Shh, no you shouldn't say that but again that sends the wrong message it sends the message that there's something wrong with noticing these differences about people which it's not right these are all just the beautiful parts of how people are made and so it's much more reinforcing of those ideas and values and respectful to that other individual to say you're right yes you know what that woman has one arm and you and I have two, but you know what? Bodies come in so many different shapes and sizes. Let's talk about that some more when we go home or if you have any questions about that. Or you're right, that woman does have really beautiful dark skin. Her skin looks different than yours and mine, but there's so many different colors. Let's talk some more about that. And that whew, totally flips it, that it's not a taboo. It's a thing they can continue to ask about. And it's not anything that holds any concept of shame. It's so interesting. You're really talking about the shadow 
and this is an, uh, an idea within psychotherapy or depth psychology within meditation that there are these parts of yourself that you learn are unacceptable and you just bury. And yet what's buried and not looked at and not acknowledged ends up exerting all of this influence, actually, that can be really damaging because you're refusing to acknowledge it. And of course, your shadow is kind of contagious in a way if you're a parent and that's your your kids get a sense of it as a kind of negative space. And so it's it's like, well, what happens if we actually bring consciousness to this if we just talk about it? And I even think about, you know, the discourse in the public around this. People try to be perfect around it. They, and then, then they shame anyone who isn't doing the perfect thing around it. Do you know what I mean? It's like because they're not able to acknowledge in themselves that they may have a bias of some kind. And what would the discourse look like if we all began from that place? Yeah. Like we keep each other in check. We're burying each other's shadows. Kind of. And con- cancel culture is, you know, taking that to the extreme. Somebody makes a faux pas, says the wrong thing, and we're not interested in educating or to looking into how we would have maybe made the same faux pas in the same situation. We're just like, no, you're canceled. Put them away. Let's continue being perfect. Or the reality is that we have. That's the other thing. It's like everybody has. It's just that that person got caught on yeah. on camera, you know, or in some way, in some hugely public way, doing what literally, you know, the majority of the population has probably done to some degree or some flavor of, you know, a similar thing. Um, cancel culture, I think, does make it scarier for people to engage with some of these ideas. People are afraid of getting it wrong or saying the wrong thing. You know, language changes mm-hmm. so quickly and evolves. People are afraid of like, do I have the right terminology? Although I will say it's not that cancel culture doesn't have its place. There are people I think that need to be canceled. You know, like if you have a public platform and you're being given you know fame and fortune and, and money and you're using that you know to spread harmful hateful mm-hmm. cancel cancel the <laughs> shit out of you like yeah. that's that is where we should be using cancel culture right um but you know sort of the individual people sort of just sort yeah. of making their way in the world and making mistakes it's it's that's that creates i think more harm cancel culture really breaks my heart when it's about young people you know because i think jeff's a little bit older than me so you probably went through like all of high school without the internet And I got to like middle school without the internet and there definitely wasn't like Instagram yet, you know, like MySpace was just starting. So you could make mistakes, the kinds of mistakes that you're making while you're learning, you know, (laughs) in the privacy of your own little fishbowl, you know, in high school. And yes, we all have them. And that's why I was like, well, I'm moving away because I don't want to be around these anymore, you know, but. Uh, you can kind of grow out of them with when we cancel somebody who's young and now they can't get their first job, you know, they're kicked out of school or something. It's like that we're we're not asking them to look at their unconscious biases and grow anymore. We're saying like you have no chance. You made the big, you, you know, you, yeah. you shit the bed as they say. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the punishment model, right? It's 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 punishing. It's not teaching. It's not guiding. It's not growing. It's not learning. Like there's like nobody benefits. I mean, there is I guess this idea of like we make an example of them so that no one else does this again. Except that it's not working. And, you know, because there are an infinite number of mistakes to be made. It, what, a, what a bizarre benchmark we've made, you know, it's just like, there's like zero mistakes. Yeah. That's yeah, the acceptable exactly. amount Yeah, uh, that society has decided. Well, right? speaking of mistakes, shall we blunder into the next exercise and reveal what <laughs> other horrific things are lying inside our hearts or souls or whatever the hardware yeah. metaphorical equivalent of the hardware is i'm ready to make some mistakes <laughs> so for the next practice um we're going to take a look we're maybe a little bit of a, of a deeper look into what ideas are we carrying around so this this next exercise is a bit of like a mental inventory and and it's going to ask uh of you and your listeners to imagine that you are going into the attic of your mind 
and you are finding out what is stored up there. What is in all of those boxes? What have I been carrying around? It's been a while since I, or maybe ever, uh, you know, since I said I went up there and, and did a little bit of a cleanup. And so for the first part, I'm just going to ask you to sort of imagine you're, you're walking into that that space. And I'm going to read off some labels that almost certainly we would all have somewhere. We'd have a box with that label on it somewhere in our attic. And as I read it, I want you to just notice the very first thing that that you kind of imagine what might be in that box. But then I'm going to pause and I'm going to give you a couple moments to to sort of figuratively open the box and explore what else is in there. And so... I'll guide you through that. Uh, we'll do a few of these and then we'll talk about them all at the end. So this is can be very much a seated exercise with finding a, a position, whatever is feels good and comfortable for you. So we'll start just with three deep breaths together. And uh, Tasha, if you could give us our ding. Bong. <laughs> So we'll just start with one deep breath in. And I'm going to say you can hold these breaths as long as feels good for you and release for as long as feels good for you. All right. So I'm going to imagine you're walking into that attic of your mind open the door. You've not been up there for a while, or like we said, maybe not ever. And I'm going to read off some of the labels there on those boxes. Drug user. Notice the first thought or image. It could be a feeling, a question, a memory, or an experience. And now take a moment to open that box up. What's in there? Who's in there? Where did this stuff come from? All right, we're gonna put that box aside. Look at the next box. Doctor. Noticing the first thought. Now take a moment to open the box and have a look again. What other kinds of ideas do you hold about that word, doctor? I'm going to move over here to this other box. It says rich person. What's the first thought, feeling, or image when I say rich person? And when you've quietly observed that, open that box up, rummage around a bit. What other ideas do you hold? Whose ideas are these? We're going to keep going. There's a lot to unpack up here. You haven't cleaned up in a while. 
Next box. Model. Model. Again, with each of these, noticing the very first thought or picture. What other thoughts or feelings or ideas are associated with that word? I'm going to do three more. Next one. Refugee. Refugee. The last couple, I'm just going to read the label and I'm going to let you practice first noticing what comes to mind and then when you're ready, opening the box. Basketball player. And the final one, beauty pageant winner. Okay. So when you're ready, take a moment to just feel your body again, where you're making contact with the floor, wiggle around. Open your eyes gently. How are we feeling? Like I just rummaged around in a dirty old <laughs> attic. <laughs> a, little dusty. a little dusty. Yeah. <laughs> Did uh, you find anything up there that surprised you? I thought it was really interesting that for every single one, the first thing that came to mind or the first kind of like image or person that came to mind was somebody that I knew personally. Even if they were like of a kind of stereotype, it wasn't like a vague person. It was somebody from my life specifically. And one thing that I was noticing is as I'm going through the box, first of all, I'm, I think I'm generally a positive person because I was only seeing the good stuff. So for even for drug users, I was like all the times that I've had fun with friends at parties and safe spaces and oh, wouldn't it be awesome if we could legalize all this stuff. <laughs> so I'm going all, all to all these great places. You know, and for rich people, I was thinking of people in my social circle who aren't, they're not billionaires or not crazy millionaires, but just who are affluent, more affluent than I am. And I was kind of like, oh, isn't it nice? They go to like, they're going on vacation more than I am or whatever. So there was just all this positivity to where towards the end of me unpacking these boxes, I had to be like, well, what is here that's also not great? You know, I was thinking about, okay, let's like look at the opioid crisis, for example, for the drug user, you know, and bringing that all in so that I'm not just focusing on how great everything is all the time. And so through that, I was I was paying attention also to the positive negative valence that all my boxes had, you know, so even if let's say for basketball player, you know, I thought of a black male because all the people that I know who play basketball are black men. But I was like, okay, this image comes up. How do I feel about the image, even if it's a little bit like maybe stereotypical? Is it a positive feeling or a negative feeling? And so 
I'm curious to hear your thoughts about, you know, there's that extra element in there too. There's like the stereotypes that we hold and then there's how we feel about the stereotype. You know, if we see a black man or if we see a sexy woman, how do we feel about it? You know, is, are we rejecting it? Are we liking it? Well, that, that's the thing is that that stereotypes are not lies. They're not like these these made up fabrications that don't apply to anybody. They're actually generally just characteristics of people that are going to apply some of the time. Any stereotype you can think of is going to apply. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. So if I carry the stereotype, you know, that, you know, all black people are good at basketball, I'm not always going to be wrong. I am going to meet black people who are good at basketball, maybe even a lot of black people who are good at basketball. The problem is that we, we overextend it, but that we also tend to attribute the characteristic to the wrong thing. Right. So then and then we feel incredibly reinforced confirmation bias, right? When we, we, you know, meet somebody who happens to fit the stereotype, or perhaps our assumption proves to be correct. What we always have to remember is that the end doesn't justify the means that still matters how we got there, and that we could have been wrong, right? Um, but it is not an, in, it's not because there's never a place for, for, you know, assumptions. I mean, we do that. It's part of our kind of regular functioning, but it's just keeping a kind of our, our focus on the fact that often these ideas, when they are unchecked and applied, whether they're right or wrong, there's still an impact or a harm in, in reducing somebody to that singular idea or part of themselves. Right. Um, but I, I want to hear from Jeff before we, uh, we lose the, uh, yeah, uh, again, it's it's almost like for me, it was either memories I've had or direct things from the media, you know, like it wasn't anyone I knew personally, you know, it was like, I sometimes I don't even know where the images came from. It was just like a, so I know where the, the drug user one was, I had a, a very powerful experience in Vancouver's East End right after I got married where I, we were, I was walking down an alley and I saw all of these users and it was like very, they were in really bad shape and it just really was kind of an emotional experience. So I right away went to that, even though I've got tons of, as I got deeper into it, of course, all the associations of partying and all those things. But th that was the first thing that came to mind. Or, or with refugees, it was like media images of the Syrian refugees coming across the boats and arriving in the Mediterranean and all the stuff around that. And a movie I saw called Flea, where there was a whole bunch of stuff around that. And so it was like, went right to there. And same, like, like replaying you know, amazing scenes with Magic Johnson from basketball, like that I've ever seen <laughs> when I was young and like moves that he did. And, but a lot of my, like the doctor was like very straight kind of, uh, male it happened to be black in this case, but like kind of like the straight, uh, no affect doctor, not good bedside <laughs> manner, the kind of, so I actually didn't have a lot, a lot of my images were, were more emotional in some way or more like disturbing or something. I don't know. Wherever our mind goes is just, it just is, right? Whether it be um, a, a super, you know, respectful, you know, sort of uh, would be acceptable by today's standards kind of image um, or not, you know, people of all, all those labels exist in a bazillion different forms. What's important is that we recognize that our mind does have a tendency to want to attach perhaps a story or an experience or a stereotype or whatever um, that may or may not be true. But what we want to be able to do is intercept there so that we can acknowledge that, you know what, some some of the things that I'm thinking are not actually part of this experience. So refugee, for example, you hear the word refugee and you picture, you know, the 
Syrian refugees, you know, fleeing from from war, and we recognize that's not an incorrect image, not a bad image. It is a, it is a true image for some, but that might not be the story of this refugee that you just met at a coffee shop. But our mind might want to tell us that that's who that person was, and that's what they've been through. They might later tell you, "I was a refugee from the states because I was in." the army and I defected because it was unsafe for me to be a queer person there. And I became a refugee to Canada, right? Like that's, those are real stories, right? That we should also be a refugee. So it's really just like intercepting. Am I bringing any ideas or values or assumptions that aren't actually contained in this moment, in this person, in this experience to, to this right now? Um, or am I actually just sort of acting on, on what I know? Yeah. It's interesting because you really start to see that obviously the world of these biases is a world of black and white. It's a world that actually is kind of like, it's not how reality actually is. There's a real reality behind it that's complex, that's rich, that's ambivalent, that has many different faces and expressions. And But we're walking around in a kind of like cartoon version of it in a say, it's like these cartoon glasses. And that's, I guess, why we do the work. This activity made me think of how important it is to expose people to as many different types of people as possible. Because as I was going through, like literally my brain was blank. You know, you'd say, for example, you said model. My brain went blank and it was like, okay, show up. And the first three people that walked onto the stage of my mind were three close friends who are career models, you know, and then the same happened for doctors and the same happened for drug users. And so it was like, I was like so confident that I I knew somebody who would just walk onto the stage of my mind as that person that I it wasn't the hair trigger of like somebody that I didn't know. And I'm wondering if, you know, like before, like, let's say if I when I was younger, when I was like, didn't know many people, how different this activity would have been and how much more stereotypical or not grounded in my own experience that would have been. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's when Jeff was asking that question about, you know, what do you do for your children, you know, to ensure that one of those things is giving them a rich and diverse set of experiences, so that that box doesn't only have the very one dimensional image that the media represents within it. I mean, I'll I'll share a little story um, that uh, my mom kind of once told me so. So my mom is a Muslim woman who doesn't wear a hijab, and she's she's quite fair skinned and, and bit red haired. So she doesn't read as Arab or Muslim immediately. And she's, uh, she had a, a coworker that, uh, that she was, you know, quite close to, and they spent a lot of time together. My mom lived across the street from the company. She'd bring people home for lunch and everybody wanted to eat my mom's Lebanese food for lunch. So it was a real, it was a real, it was a real win if you, if you got in close <laughs> with Najwa. And so this woman came and like ate at our, in our home, like many, many, many times. And then one day she's talking to my mom and my mom says, uh, how was the, how's the new house, you know, after the move? And she's like, oh, you know, we were liking it, but now we're feeling like we should move because some people moved in next door and they're quite, quite scary. And my mom's like, oh no who moved in next door like what's going on and she's like well you know they wear that fabric on their heads and my mom was telling me she pictured the kkk so she was like yeah you should move you need to get out of there get out get the hell out now right (laughs) and then as the woman keeps talking my mother realizes she's talking about the hijab and she's talking about muslims have moved in next door and my mom's like oh you mean they're they're muslim and the woman's like yeah can you imagine and my mom's like 
So this is awkward. <laughs> oh um, you should know I'm a devout Muslim. And she was super shocked. And then when I asked my mom, I was like, man, I'm so sorry that that happened. Like, what a hurtful, horrifying experience. And to like lose a, a close friend like that. My mom's like, I don't lose a friend. What do you mean? Um, and she's like, we're still friends. She's coming over for lunch tomorrow. And then my mom said, well, like the only image she had of most, she'd never met a real Muslim person in her life. And like her exclusive image of what that was and her exclusive understanding of what that was, was like what she'd heard on TV. And there'd be no benefit to Muslim people if I bounced from her life right now. So like now she knows a real Muslim person. That's such a powerful story and makes me think of so many examples of my own life that happens every single day. I'm thinking the same thing, you know, it's like, and even think about my parents, you know, they're like old school, you know, kind of blue collar grew up in small towns in Ontario. And they, so they didn't have a very wide understanding of the world. And, but as I was a teenager and the friends that I brought home and there was so much more diversity in terms of, you know, sexual preference and race and, and they, it broadened their horizons. I noticed them get less homophobic, less, you know, narrow minded in their views because they were continually and then and but same with my sister, same with my brother. And you can actually watch that older generation kind of expand their understanding or however you want to put it. I've watched it happen so many times because as a person of color who grew up with predominantly white people, I've kind of been that person. Like I've been people's token black friend or I've been guys token girlfriend. And it's like actually really fun. Like, it's really cool. I mean, it's it can be tiring. Obviously, it's like tiring to be a figurehead for an entire people who you're not even really like, you know, because <laughs> there's, yeah. there's no homogeneity between us. But like, it is really cool to see, like, let's say, for example, people who I was close with in high school, I know that they're in mixed marriages and they're great parents because they're parenting in a style of a person who's just slightly more worldly or whatever. And I see that I see that difference. And I'm like, that's something that I was able to contribute to just by being in their lives, you know, and people have done the same for me, obviously. Absolutely. And it's not to say that for those who, you know, there are some limitations. There are people, I mean, my, my work's taken me like into really small communities and isolated communities where there's there's very little access to that real diversity. But we live in such an incredible, you know, digital age right now where we can broaden that, but intentionally. I mean, there have been studies that show that the impact of, say, for example, uh, youth and who they follow, who are the Instagram followers that they follow. And when they, when they diversify the body... To these are specific body image studies. When they diversify that news feed and they they the parents maybe take an active role in making sure that they're following, you know, a more diverse representative kind of group of influencers or whatever, that there's a direct correlation between their own self-image and self-concept and self-love and the percentage of diverse or realistic bodies that they see depicted, right? So so it's things like, you know, are we, can we keep our kids off social media? No, it's just not realistic anymore. But can we take an active role and be like, look, you know, I noticed that they're interested in this person who unboxes yeah. <laughs> unboxes toys. That stuff just that ruined my life the first time I learned that there were nine year old children making millions of dollars <laughs> unboxing toys on the Internet. But anyway, <laughs> but like, yeah, then look for, you know, kids of other races and abilities. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the democratization of media in that sense, you know, because like for all of us, kind of our first the first media we consumed was like one directional people in somewhere else with some budgets and some ideas made these shows and we just consumed them. And now we can kind of be like, no, that doesn't check. Let me go to Instagram and watch these hilarious people and and we can kind of construct our own. Exactly. And we can answer back. Right. Like whereas we only just could could consume it. Now we can say like, F that. 
I'm not buying your products if you're going to use that kind of marketing. I don't want that. I mean, I remember the moment I, I, I feel like this happened. I used to talk about Mr. Clean a lot in my programs. I'm taking, I'm just going to, I'm going to make a bold claim that's completely basis <laughs> and I don't believe is entirely true, but I think I made Mr. Clean change their marketing. Um, so I was going around to high schools all over and everywhere and in my programs and I talk about like, you know, like gender stereotypes, right? And it's like, you think about most of the commercials around cleaning products and I would do this on purpose to kind of like, you know, get people to, to bring up Mr. Clean because they always do. Like, it's always some frazzle haired woman, like on her hands and knees, you know, trying to get her grout clean. Um, and then they're like, no, but what about Mr. Clean? But if you notice for the first like 50 years, Mr. Clean never cleaned, yo. He only showed up and supervised yes, he just stood while there. women cleaned. Yes. He just stood there. He super. He was like, "It's okay, little lady," and he'd hand her the solution to her problem. She'd get an instant makeover, and her grout would be sparkling. 100%. He was a super. He was the brains behind the operation, right? Um, and so we. I used to say this for like years and years and years. And then there was like a uh, I one commercial that kind of came out, and then it went away, and then it came back, and there was a man cleaning in it. Um, and and I bet they're just like they're out there on the internet. They're like, "Oh no, the jig is up. We gotta just pull it quickly." Raymond Deep's calling out. Clean some shit before everybody else notices. Yeah. Um, but that shit works, I think. It does, right? Like, I mean, they've got people. Their job is to scour and find out what we think of them. So just make sure we tell them, you know, and start to change it. Well, like, I remember growing up with uh, the, the antiperspirant that was, like, strong enough for a man made for a woman. And then that held until the birth of social media where people were like, hold on a second. What is this about? And then there was, like, some threads and then, you know, the secret. I think it was secret antiperspirant. It just kind of, like, went away and came back. It was like... Strong enough for a woman, made for a woman. We got you. <laughs> yeah. So we have that power, right? We we are all powerful now. We can start to we can start to change this. We can demand cool. more. You know, we don't have to anymore just like tolerate the bullshit. We can just ask. We can demand. You know, we can vote with our money. So anyway, there's hope. It's beautiful to think about the more diverse the offerings out there, the more we can own all the different parts of ourselves. You know, the more that the our, our own true complexity is reflected back. And like I think about this, for example, in relation to, to mental health, there's been so many stigmas around talking about mental health issues. There's been traditionally a kind of way in which you think this is what normal looks like. This is what a healthy mind looks like. But now you have so many more people talking about their bipolar, talking about ADHD, talking about depression, talking about schizophrenia, like talking about real mental health variation. And so that suddenly makes it possible for other people to begin to own and acknowledge the parts of them that didn't kind of fit into that perfect box. And so you really, the more there's more that happens on the outside, the more healing that can happen on the inside. If there's a sort of direct correlation. That's the most fascinating part of it too, right? Is that it's not just, uh, you know, doing this unconscious bias work and identifying these ideas, these assumptions, the stereotypes, you know, the, the one dimensional stories that were told about people. Um, is it not only about improving the way that we treat others, but actually ourselves, right? So much of this is internalized that we turn onto ourselves. And so this is, you know, an opportunity not only for us to improve the way that we treat others, but really like it's a it's an exercise in self-love. Yeah, that's huge. What do you notice, Rima, just maybe as a kind of final question here, what do you notice for people who've gone through your workshops that you, you people you might follow up with after or even at the end of the workshops, like how does this work land? You know, what are some of the things that you see on the, on the other side of it? Um, I think one of one of the the impacts of this kind of 
visualization kind of exercises where we kind of get to know and we encounter our own un unconscious ideas is that we can't unsee it once we've seen it. And so for a lot of people, there's very much that that effect of like, um, especially when we talk about kind of the, the, the takeaways, you know, what people notice when they interact with these ideas and they're universal. And so it's hard to deny the, the universality of this experience when you when you've had it collectively, you know, with like 30 colleagues in the room and, you know, you all had the same mental image when I said a thing or we we all behaved in a, in a similar way. Right. So there's immediately sort of this collective buy in, which is like, OK all right, I see what you're saying. I do do this. I do have this. Um, and so I think that that certainly prompts people to take a little bit more seriously the idea of like, you know, these things do exist within me and maybe I can do something about it. Um, and I think that uh, for a lot of people, people are often surprised. They have a really good time. I mean, the way we do it in the workshop is there's a whole other kind of uh, activity that we build. It's a group activity and involves a bunch of moving parts and um, and they have like a great time. They was like, wow, that was a riot. I didn't know I'd have so much fun learning. <laughs> learning about the deep dark corners of, of myself. Um, but I think when we can laugh at it, I think it just opens us up a little bit more. I think if we take ourselves too seriously and uh, it gets it gets heavy and if it's heavy, we're going to want to put it down. But if we if we're able to keep it light, we can carry it longer and I think we can do more, do more with it. Well, Rima, Harmony at Work is the website where can, people can find you. HarmonyAtWork.ca. Anything else? Oh, uh, there uh, for sure. If I don't know if either of you have ever tried the Harvard University mm -hmm. Implicit Association Test. Uh, this is a super interesting. I mean, you can just Google it, Harvard Implicit Association Test, but I'm sure that we can share a link. Uh, and that's like a. It's an interesting test that they've been doing now for probably over a decade, and it. It, the way that the test is designed is it's super sort of left brain, right brain, rapid fire. And so what it really does tap into is those unconscious ideas, right? You don't have time to actually consciously think about any of it. And so what the test really serves to do is let you know what kind of associations or connections your mind makes with, with different identities of people, different categories. Um, but if we do it, again, remembering the sort of most important takeaway, no judgment, there's no shame. There's no shame in having any of these ideas, but we can definitely feel really great about uncovering it because the more we know about what we've got in there, the more actively we can play a role in sort of, you know, interrupting those ideas and mitigating the harm. So, uh, yeah, that's an interesting, interesting awesome. thing to try. Cool. Thank you so much. This Thank has you. been a journey into into our own attic <laughs> minds, dusty, dusty boxes, but also just yes. out into the world <laughs> and our interactions with it. So fun to hang out with you, Rima. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this episode, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week for a whole new adventure.